Well, years ago, I'm told that there was a man who operated an ice house, and he lost a very expensive watch in the sawdust of the ice house. And he desperately wanted to retrieve that watch, not only because of its material worth, but also because it held sentimental value to him. Well, he offered a generous reward for anyone that found it, and a determined group of men went through that sawdust with rakes and other tools, even stooping at times to use their bare hands in order to recover that lost watch. But after hours and hours of searching, no success, they left the building for lunch. And while they were gone, a young boy went into the ice house and within a few minutes, literally just a couple of minutes, emerged with a big smile carrying the timepiece. How on earth did you find that watch so quickly? They asked him. The little boy replied, matter-of-factly, well, I just lay down in the sawdust and listened. <laughs> and I finally heard the watch ticking. But today, I want all of us to look at, a, at the very first miracle that Jesus performed in his public ministry, according to the Gospel of John. And in his Gospel... Now, you got to know that John highlights seven prominent miracles and signs specifically chosen by him to point people to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing in him, we can have life in his name. That's John's stated purpose in John chapter 20, verse 31, at the end of his gospel. But John used these miraculous signs as signposts to Christ, to the Savior. Now, let me make a disclaimer here. There are actually eight miracles in John, but the eighth one is found in John 21 after John states his purpose. The miracles themselves are not of primary importance as much as the meaning behind them. They are saturated with spiritual significance. And with each miracle, another facet of the Father is revealed by Jesus to the world. As someone has well said, the miracles are really windows into heaven, opportunities to see what God the Father is always doing. Our job, through the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit, is to uncover the precious, valuable truths about Jesus and the Father that are buried just beneath the surface clear away the sawdust and finding the valuable nuggets. Finding what is valuable in any of the miracles Christ performed is not going to happen by our intellectual ingenuity or by our frantic human effort like that boy found that watch in the sawdust digging out what God wants us to learn from the miracles is going to happen by slowing if not stopping our frenetic activity and quietly listening for the sound of God's gentle voice. Now, some of you, possibly in this place this morning, have lost more than a watch. You've lost the precious truth of your worth to God. You've lost your resolve, maybe, to live for Christ. 
Maybe you've lost your grip on God's faithfulness to you or the invigorating joy that you once had in serving him. Somewhere along the line, it got buried and you can't seem to dig it out. You can't seem to find it again. If that's you, you need to be incredibly still right now and quietly listen to the Lord who will speak to you and show you just where you lost the power and the victory that you missed so much and long to get back. Be still, the psalmist wrote, and know that I am God. So stop and listen this morning and allow Jesus to transform you. Because he will turn your darkness into joy. If you will seek him with all your heart, he will let you find him. And you'll begin to be able to say with David, for thou art my lamp, O Lord, and the Lord illumines my darkness. For by thee I can run upon a troop, but my, by my God I can leap over a wall. That's actually in 2 Samuel But then in the Psalms, David says, Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Thou hast turned for me my mourning into dancing. Thou hast loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness that my soul may sing praise to thee and not be silent. That sound good to you? Something you'd like to have maybe? Well, Jesus can do that for you. If you think it's absolutely beyond all possibility, I've got news for you, and so does the Gospel of John. It's not. If there's a miracle that points us to the transforming joy of life in Jesus, it's the very first miracle that Christ ever performed. Does it seem odd to you, if you thought about it, That Jesus revealed himself first not by liberating someone from a debilitating disease or by wowing the masses with the parting of the sea. Doesn't it seem a bit odd that the initial signpost that inaugurated his messianic ministry and his public ministry involved a raucous party? Some unidentified people an out-of-the-way village, and some jugs of cheap wine. The emergency at hand was not of an earth-shaking magnitude. It was a social crisis. Let me explain that. It was a societal faux pas. A little embarrassment in some wilting spirits may have been the extent of the fallout. So why in the world would the Messiah of the nation of Israel, the Savior of the world, concern himself with that? Because Jesus in all his glory and all his majesty and power is intensely interested in the restoration of joy. He is. Not in the worldly sense, but in the eternal sense. True joy, eternal joy, is only experienced through a relationship with Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis once said that joy is the serious business of heaven. I love the way he turns his phrases. How many times did Jesus himself say that in his ministry? He said things like, these things I have spoken to you 
that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. That's John 15. In John 16, we read something very similar. Verse 24. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name, asking you will receive, so that your joy may be made full. And then in chapter 17, in verse 13, he says, but now I come to you, he's in his high priestly prayer, praying to his father, now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Jesus is seriously interested in bringing people to the heights of spiritual joy, isn't he? I mean, in Luke chapter 2, verse 10, it is testified to at the beginning of his life. I bring you good news of great, what? Joy. In Luke chapter 15, that lost and found chapter, in verses 7 and 10, Jesus refers to the fact that joy is the climate of heaven. There is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that has repented the 99 who needs no repentance, right? Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14 even. And verses 17 and 18. Paul writes, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. And then in chapter 15, in verse 13, he writes, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians chapter, chapter 5, verse 22, we find out that joy is the result of a heart that's filled with the Spirit, right? And then in 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, and verses 8 and 9, we find out that joy is the distinguishable proof of an authentic faith. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 says this, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Friends, there, if there's a message hidden beneath the sawdust of this miracle in John chapter 2 that we're going to look at this morning, which has been ruthlessly attacked by the skeptical chainsaws of so-called theological analysis, it is the truth that Jesus is interested in bringing us into the experience of full joy, the joy of his salvation. And he does it not by simple substitution, Rather, he does it by total transformation. So if you're here looking for a miracle this morning, if you're looking for the, your joy to be restored, hang on, because it's been my experience that Jesus rarely substitutes something in your situation. More often, he transforms you in that situation. Jesus brings joy by total transformation, not by simple substitution. So let's look at John chapter 2, the first 11 verses. Follow with me as I read. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? 
my hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And so they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And so they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Then John follows up with this. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. It's an odd miracle to manifest your glory if you're the Messiah. This morning it's my intent not to give you an airtight theological dissertation on this miraculous sign of Jesus. I want to make some applications Okay, a few practical applications to the common problems that you and I face on a daily basis. Daily setbacks, okay? We're dealing with daily setbacks this morning. Nothing major, not life or death emergencies. That's not what we're dealing with with this miracle this morning. Rather, things that we face that we tend not to want to bother Jesus with. Obstacles that threaten to steal our joy if we allow them to build up and remain unattended. These applications are of supreme importance because if we can grasp the truth that Jesus is seriously interested in revitalizing our joy, even in the midst of our little problems, we'll be more apt to trust him in the major ones, won't we? There are at least six things that emerge in this situation concerning the transformation process Jesus wants to take us through. Six transformative truths to remember. And the first one is this. Mark it down. No place is too foreign. No place is too foreign for the presence of of Jesus. First two verses on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. His mother of the mother of Jesus was there. Both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Jesus comes to this wedding and he will turn up in the most unlikely places imaginable. Not that a wedding is an unlikely place to find Jesus, mind you. He believed in the institution of marriage, I think, don't you? He was a vocal promoter of family values, but I know people that bristle at the thought that Jesus would have been in a place where there may have been drinking going on to the point of drunkenness even. And they somehow feel that it's their duty to protect Jesus' reputation and integrity as if he needed to be protected. You know anyone like that? They give you the impression that Jesus had no social life whatsoever. None. He never laughed. He never had fun. And he certainly didn't hang around people who did. That's ridiculous. And it's biblically inaccurate. 
One of the great controversies surrounding Jesus' life was that he was a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. He often ate and drank with people of questionable character. You can read it in Matthew chapter 9 and 11 and Luke chapter 15. The fact is Jesus was no killjoy. He loved to share in the happy experiences of people and a wedding was an incredibly joyous occasion. Weddings in the Jewish culture, if you don't know, were week-long raucous events. Usually the whole community was involved in the celebration which began with the bridegroom and his men parading through the streets to retrieve the bride, usually late in the evening. And after the ceremony, the young couple would be conducted to their new home by torchlights by the longest route possible in order that as many people as possible could wish them well. There was no going away for a honeymoon as we know it. No, rather, at the groom's home, there was an incredible feast and festivities. The party often would last long into the night and into the week. During that time, the couple remained dressed in their wedding clothes and were treated like a king and queen. There was lots of food, and there was lots of music, and there was lots of wine, and there was lots of cheer. A wedding was a time of high joy. People looked forward to those kinds of celebrations. In a life where the majority of the people were overworked, underpaid, and exorbitantly taxed, the relaxing joy of a wedding celebration was truly a welcome thing to them. Jesus, the text says, was invited to this party with his disciples. His mother was there. Some scholars feel that Mary may have been one of the people in charge of the arrangements, as a matter of fact due to her concern over the wine running out. The text doesn't say it, but what it does say is that Jesus was invited to this feast. And that says to me that Jesus was at home on these occasions. He wasn't a recluse separatist who never rubbed shoulders with the world. He accepted invitations to social events and entered into the joyful celebrations of life. He immersed himself in the normal experiences of life. He went to parties, even where there were no non-believers. What better place to be if you want to be salt and light? He didn't participate in sinful behavior, mind you, but he certainly valued social encounters and the celebration of life's joyful moments. Spurgeon once said, and I quote, that an individual who has no geniality about him had better be an undertaker and bury the dead, for he will never succeed in influencing the living. There will be more souls led to heaven by a man who wears heaven on his face than by one who bears Tartarus, that's hell in the Bible, in his looks. Unquote. Now, if Jesus didn't think it was wrong to be joyful, why should his followers? In the prayerful words of St. Teresa of Avila, from silly devotions and sour-faced saints, deliver us, O Lord. I believe that in the process of allowing Jesus to revitalize our joy, we need to come to terms with the truth that in encountering Jesus' presence, no place is too foreign for him to show up. But secondly, we need to grasp the fact that in engaging his interest, no problem is too trivial for Jesus. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, 
the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, here it is in the midst of this high-spirited celebration, the wine ran out. It gave out. And in a Jewish feast, wine was essential. In fact, the rabbis had a saying that went like this, quote, without wine, there is no joy, unquote. Now, don't misinterpret that statement. <laughs> and certainly don't make a post on Facebook that says, Pastor Russ says we can go and drink. <laughs> in fact, without wine, there is no joy in life. No, don't misinterpret them or me. The rabbis weren't implying that you had to be intoxicated to have a good time. Wine was an essential staple in the diet of the Near Eastern culture because of the impurity of their water. Wine was a common drink, and it was an essential provision as refreshments for guests. The failure to provide for the needs of the guests would have brought unthinkable disgrace and embarrassment upon the couple. They would have been humiliated in front of the entire community on the most joyful day of their life. Hospitality was very highly valued in Jesus' day. Not to be caught unprepared, especially at a wedding feast, was an embarrassment of the highest degree. So in the grand scheme of life, again, I remind you, this was not a major emergency. No cause for calling 911. Certainly not important enough to bend the ear of the Messiah. And that is what is so appealing about this whole scene to me. Mary identified the problem, and she took it right to Jesus. No major catastrophe. She simply went to Jesus, and she made the statement, they have no wine. As one writer suggests, her solution poses a practical plan for untangling life's knots. She simply looked at the knot, she assessed it, took it to the right person. I've got one here I can't untie, Jesus. Let me ask you something. Is that what you do? Even with little things? You know, it seems so simple, doesn't it? Too easy. But if most of us would take the same practical steps that Mary took, we'd have a lot less hang-ups, a lot less stress, and a lot more joy. You know, people come to me with knots in their life. They can't untie. And one of the first things that I try to ask them is, have you prayed about it? Have you sought Jesus' word on it? And they say something to the effect of, well, well, no, I thought maybe you could give me some direction. My dear friends, I love you, but let me tell you something right up front. The first place you need to go is... Jesus. That's step one. Don't come to me. Don't come to Henry. Don't come to Chris until you've come to Jesus first. If you're having trouble hearing his voice, finding answers in his word, then by all means, seek the help of a mature godly person or a pastor to help you get on track. But please understand, the solution to your problem absolutely must begin and end with Jesus. Mary took it to Jesus. You might be saying, well, of course she did. She was his mother. <laughs> but he's not interested in hearing my measly little problems. He's got bigger things to deal with, like widespread famine, 
uh, the COVID-19 coronavirus, for example, or our American political insanity, and the future of Israel, just to name a few things. Don't you think Jesus is interested in that? If that's what you think, you need a vivid reminder that no problem is too trivial for Jesus' concern if you are his child. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 says this, Let him have all of your worries and cares, for he always, he is always thinking about you and watching everything that concerns you. That's the word of God. Third thing, no need is more personal. Verses 4 and 5. Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with, with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. The fact that Mary turned immediately to Jesus shows us something about her faith in him, doesn't it? Uh, she trusted him. She didn't know what he was going to do, maybe if he was going to do anything. I'm sure she didn't expect a miracle of such caliber. He hadn't yet performed any that had been recorded in the scripture anyway. But she knew she could trust Jesus, and she did. Yet when she makes the request, Jesus' response seems almost abrupt to us, doesn't it? Woman, he says, what do I have to do with you? Is that any way to talk to your mom? <laughs> Far from being disrespectful, Jesus uses an endearing term here. In fact, the same one he used as he hung dying on the cross when he committed Mary into the care of his beloved disciple John. Same word. He used the same term. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. He used the same term when he addressed a grief-stricken friend, Mary, at the resurrection, at his resurrection. He says to her, dear woman, it's a closer translation to it, not just woman, but dear woman. Jesus says, dear woman, why do you involve me in this? Your interest in this matter and mine are not necessarily the same, he tells his mother. Because my hour has not yet come. It's interesting to me that he says, Jesus speaks a lot about the hour, my hour, right? This is the first time we hear him utter this to his mother, and the last time we hear him utter it is to his father in heaven. The hour has come, he said. While it seems as though he puts her off, what is actually happening here is that an incredible change is taking place in Jesus and Mary's relationship. And only John brings us face to face with a defining moment in the lives of Jesus and Mary. Look a little deeper. The mother-son relationship here that she has experienced for so many years is now being superseded by the believer-savior relationship. In carefully chosen words, Jesus is cutting the ties. He would always recognize her as his earthly mother, but right now she must realize him as her heavenly Lord. See, in this moment, Jesus seizes the opportunity to familiarize Mary with the reality of who he really was and what he had come to do. 
things that she had pondered for years since his birth, the scripture shows us. His life would now be lived according to the father's will, not his mother's wishes. No one, not even Mary, had up to this point understood, I don't think, the nature of his true mission or his messiahship. When he said, my hour has not yet come, he saw his life not against the shifting background of time, but against the steady background of eternity. From this point on and throughout the rest of the Gospel of John, Jesus speaks about his hour. He speaks about it in John chapter 7, in John chapter 8, in John chapter 12, and then John chapter 13, and then to his father in John chapter 17, verse 1. He was on this divine timetable heading toward the cross. The Old Testament prophets had prophesied of the Messianic age when the new wine of the Spirit would flow liberally. But Jesus knew that the hour of the cross must come before the hour of the feast. And so he hesitated at her request, letting her know that what he was about to do could only be dictated by the Father's plan, not necessarily her request. In John chapter 5, in verse 19, in verse 30, we read these words that therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. See, Jesus also knew that from the moment he performed this first miracle, his life would never be the same again after that. And neither would his mothers, nor his disciples, Someone noted, if he acted, a clock would start ticking that would not stop until Calvary. A clock that would never, nor could ever be turned back. Author Ken Geyer writes, during that brief moment, Mary looks into her son's face and sees a decidedly different man than the one who has lived with her and has cared for her for the last 30 years. I believe that in that split second, Mary was more taken by what she saw in his eyes than what she heard from his lips. Yet somehow she knew that whatever he decided to do was going to be the right thing. So she left it in his hands. Her words to the servants indicate that it was Jesus who was in control of the situation. Look at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to do, do. Whatever he says to you, do it. Whatever he says to you, do it. Here is the all-inclusive secret to experiencing an abundant life of full joy in Christ. It's right there in that word. Whatever Jesus says to you, do it. It's one thing to ask the question, what would Jesus do? Right? But asking the question is only half the equation. 
The important follow-up to the question, what would Jesus do, is right here in this verse. Whatever he says to you, do it. Every word here is significant. Whatever. That means everything and anything. Whatever he says means that it must be Christ saying it. Whatever he says to you means you, not somebody else, you. Later on at the end of John's Gospel, Jesus is walking with Peter. Jesus tells Peter how he's going to be martyred. John's following behind. Peter says, what about this guy back here? What does Jesus respond to Peter? What is that to you? You follow me. Whatever he says to you, do it. You know what that means? That means obedience. That means action. That means you got to act on what he says. You know what this implies in a word? Lordship. It implies that Jesus is Lord and what he says goes. When these words become your driving motivation, my driving motivation, Jesus truly becomes Lord of your life. Because it means that if Jesus tells you to fill your empty, stone-cold heart of anger with new wine of Christ-like forgiveness, you're going to do it. It means that if he tells you to strip yourself of the old clothes of judgmentalism and be renewed in your mind with the power of unlimited grace, you're going to do it. It means that if Jesus tells you to quit being satisfied with the stagnant water of the world's second-rate pleasures and start being filled with the lasting fruit of Jesus' righteousness, you're going to change. You want to revitalize joy-filled life? Whatever he says to you, do it. That means that no area of our life is too foreign for Jesus to invade. No problem in our life is too trivial for Jesus to address. And that no need in our life is more personal to his heart. And as a handful of people found out at this particular wedding, no change is more radical than the one that Jesus performs. No place too foreign, no problem too trivial, no need is more personal, and number four, no change is more radical. That's in verses 6 through 8. There were six stone water pots there, set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said, fill the water pots with water. They filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter, and they took it to him. Fill the water pots with water, he said. Jesus told the servants this. At least 120 gallons of water filled the six stone pots. These water pots were there for two reasons. You know what they were? Cleansing the feet upon entry of the house and ritual purification of the hands before and during the meal. The water was there to purify people. Strict Jews washed their hands not only before a meal, but between every course of the meal. Jewish ceremonial law required it. If it was not done, the hands were technically considered unclean. In fact, this comes back later in the Gospels when they ask, why don't your disciples wash their hands? And they ask Jesus. You see, 
See, if it wasn't done, their hands were technically unclean. It was this water of external cleansing that Jesus turned into wine, wine of the best quality, 2,000 plus servings. Must have been a lot of people at that wedding. Behind the whole miraculous scene, Jesus was delivering a message that would radically change not only the course of this wedding, but the color of religious history. Moses turned water into blood. Remember that? The harsh judgment of the Old Testament law. Christ turned water into wine. The lavish joy of New Testament grace. It's as if he was giving the world a glimpse, a beautiful picture of the fact that his mission on earth was to turn the imperfection of the external law into the perfection of relational grace. No change was more radical. This was an unbelievable transformation. He didn't speak to the water. He didn't touch the water pots. Just the moving of his will and the obedience of those servants, in a sense, I believe Jesus was subtly revealing that the time for ritual outward cleansing had passed and the time for genuine internal purification had begun. There's so much in this miracle that we could see. Jesus' inauguration as Messiah. By the end of his ministry, he would be at another feast, if you remember, with his disciples, and there he would symbolically change wine into blood. The blood of the new covenant. His blood, which cleanses us from all sin. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 to 15 says this, Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. But just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify your consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and the people so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under the first covenant. And in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7, we read, If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. You see, this change was dramatic on so many different levels, but no more dramatic than the change that happens when a man or a woman identifies the problem of sin in their life, they take it to Jesus and they do what he says about it. When anyone does that, you know what happens, right? He's going to radically change you. I hope you're ready for that. He'll change you from the inside out. Listen to the way 2 Corinthians 5.17 is paraphrased in the message. Because this verse is very familiar to us, right? Eugene Peterson paraphrases it like this. Now we look inside and what we see is that anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start, is created new. The old life is gone, a new life burgeons. Look at it. All this comes from God who settled the relationship between us and him and then called us to settle our relationships with each other. 
God put the world square with himself through the Messiah, giving the world a fresh start, offering forgiveness of sins. The New Living Translation translates this verse this way. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. New life has begun. So what are you waiting for if you haven't done it yet? I read once that a Maine-based business, American Kitchen Products Company of Maine, had a marketing brainstorm in 1978 years ago. They created a product called I Hate Peas. Anybody remember that product? I Hate Peas. It was composed, believe it or not, of smashed up peas and spinach, but it was disguised as French fries in order to get children to eat it. This was the whole purpose of it, right? Ultimately, the product failed. <laughs> As you can imagine, it failed because the company had been unable to overcome one small obstacle. It still tasted like peas. <laughs> Here's the deal about sinful life. You can squash it, you can reshape it, you can recolor it, you can cover it, you can repackage it, but it still leaves a bad taste in your mouth. You know why? Because you need a total transformation. Maybe the joy has recently run out of your life. The jars stand empty at the door. You're at the end of your limit, humiliated ashamed, worried that you will never recover. You've tried filling those jars with a cheap wine of worldly pleasure, trying to convince yourself that it's satisfying to your palate, but eventually that runs dry after a while. You need to come to Jesus if that's you and let him transform your life and do what the psalmist says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man or the woman who takes refuge in him. When it comes to Jesus, no place is too foreign for him, no problem too trivial for him, no need is more personal to him, no change is more radical, and fifthly, this miracle shows us that no gift is more desirable. No gift is more desirable. Verse 9, when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And then when the people have drunk freely, he serves the poorer wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. At most weddings in Jesus' day, that was the common practice. Serve the best wine first until their palates had become so dull to the taste, then they'd substitute cheap wine and nobody'd know the difference. The new wine Jesus made was far superior to anything this waiter had ever tasted. Don't dismiss the connection here. At first, the world offers its best, something palatable. Initially, it suits our taste, it brings us pleasure, makes us happy. But then once we're hooked, things start to go downhill. Jesus, however, gives us satisfaction that is beyond the best the world can offer, doesn't he? But the greatest news is that he's saving his best for last. 
Because the world's joy always runs out. Always. It never gets beyond the latest trend or the newest thrill. But the joy that Christ gives is fresh and new and everlasting. And it only gets better with age. He is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think, the scripture says. No place is too foreign for you to find him. No problem that you have is too trivial for him to work in. No need is more personal than yours. No change will be more radical to your heart. No gift is more desirable. And at the end of the day, according to John, when it's all said and done, no truth becomes more visible. No truth becomes more visible. In verse 11, this beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Listen, my friends, no truth is more visible than the truth that Jesus is the answer to our greatest need. He can and will meet you in your hour. You need some joy? Come to Jesus, because he works miracles. Sometimes quietly, often subtly. No announcement, no spotlights, no grand entrances, hardly any witnesses sometimes. But the ones that see him, the ones who know him, the ones who trust him, have their faith enlarged and their joy is made full. That's John's message. Let's pray. Lord, so many things that we can mine out of this text. But the one true thing is we know that you are concerned, Lord God, with all of us and the problems, the little ones even that we have. Never mind the great ones. I pray, our Father, that if there is somebody here today that doesn't know you, that doesn't have the joy, maybe there's a believer that knows you but has lost their joy. Lord, would you come as you did to that wedding at Cana and take the dull, tasteless water that has become part of their character and transform it into the best wine of full joy. Do that for all of us, we pray, Lord God. Give us a new lease on life as we leave this place today. And may our step pick up. And as we head into this, this season of, of looking and remembering at Christ's suffering and his death, let us remember the full joy of the promise of resurrection. This I ask in the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.